0: This is the podcast of the german historical institute london a research center dedicated to supporting and connecting students and scholars from britain and germany the podcast series presents current research in british german and european history as well as colonial and global history for more information on the german historical institute london future events the ghil library student ships, and more podcast episodes, please visit our website at ghil.ac.uk. Today's lectures by Elizabeth Hunter and Hannah Alheim take us through the history of sleep in the 17th and 20th century. From foregoing sleep entirely to sleeping more efficiently, Hannah Alheim talks about how modern society governed by science, rationality and productivity experimented with one of our core needs. Hannah Alheim is Professor of Contemporary History at the University of Gießen. Her research interests include the history of National Socialism and Antisemitism, the social and cultural history of sleep, as well as the science and the history of time. The second lecture, a paper by Elizabeth Hunter read by GHIL fellow Malika Leuzinger, takes us into the 17th century when stories about wonderful sleepers fascinated the reading audience. They allegedly slept for years, composed poetry or even killed in their sleep and appeared to provide evidence of a world beyond the material. Elizabeth Hunter is an honorary research fellow at Queen Mary University of London. She's currently writing a monograph entitled The Secrets of Sleep, funded by the Wellcome Trust. But first, let us start with Hannah Alheim.
1: I will start with a picture of a little bird. Every year at the end of summer, a little bird, this little bird, starts its long journey along the North American west coast, southwards from Alaska to Mexico. The white-croned sparrow flies thousands of miles to spend the winter in a warmer region. The little bird looks quite ordinary. It is, however, an exceptional creature, a miracle of nature. During its seven-day-long trip, the bird is able to fly night and day without falling asleep for even a minute. So he's awake for more than 200 hours in a row. This is why the white crowned sparrow is a legend amongst sleep researchers and stay-awake heroes. In the last decade, the US Defense Department has spent large sums of money to study the little animal in order to find a way to keep not only birds, but also people awake. And I've chosen this little st- story of this bird as a starting point for my lecture tonight because Sparrow embodies a dream that was becoming more and more attractive and in a way more and more realistic during the 20th century. The dream of staying awake, of reducing one's sleeping time and thereby of living a more productive and a fuller life. I want to argue that this dream of staying awake and sleep less has a decisive impact uh, on our notion of a good, regular, and healthy sleep until today. So I want to take you on a short trip through the 20th century, the whole century in 20 minutes. So that I, I hope that <laughs> we will able to, um, yeah, to to you will able to follow me. Let's uh, t- say it that way, and I will take you to four different stops in this long ride. Um, that are a kind of turning points in the history of sleep in the 20th century, and as Christina von Hohenberg already told you, my examples come from Germany and from the US. The dream of staying awake and sleeping efficiently, productive, has its roots already in the late 19th century. Around 1900. The invention of constantly working, never tiring machines and the spreading of electric light has slowly dissolved the boundaries between night and day. At the same time, life seemed to become faster and more demanding due to new means of communication and new means of transport, especially in the big city such as London or Berlin or New York. More and more experts describe sleep now as an obstacle for the smooth functioning of the individual, either because, because the night's sleep got into a state of disorder or because the need to sleep did not fit into the schedules of a society that never slept. Then, in the 1920s and 1930s, the idea of optimizing human sleep by reducing it became a topic of research for the first time. So, our first stop will be Washington, D.C. in the 1920s. In the second leg of our ride, I will touch upon the years of the Second World War, in which experts revealed that the relevance of sleep as a resource resource for mental and bodily health. The third leg will explore the fascination of staying awake in the 1950s and 60s. And last but not least, I want to discuss the emerging of a new scientific concept, the idea of an inner biological clock that started to spread in the last decades of the 20th century. As we will see, the concept of the biological clock shapes the sleep of our dreams until today. Well, let's, first go to the 1920s. In these years, sleep got under pressure. With the idea of scientific management, new forms of serial production became established and the tempo and the rhythms of the assembly line seemed to accelerate the basic rhythms of work and thereby also of life. Experts and workers themselves began to think now about the tiring, effects of working together with or against machines that were running night and day. At the same time, the Wolfram light bulb made it possible to illuminate not only factory halls, but also city centers, theaters, pubs, clubs, bars, private homes, and streets. The illuminated roaring twenties saw new extremes of nightlife and night work That contested the boundaries between night and day decisively. Against this backdrop, the idea of a human being who was independent from the rhythms of night and day became increasingly attractive. Experts from several fields such as biologists, psychologists, physiologists, dreamed now about the possibility of releasing humankind from the need to sleep at night and to be awake during the day. According to their concept of human sleep, the individual was free to choose his own bedtime all by himself and to live according to a freely arranged rhythm. A scientific study from Germany claimed in 1930, for example, I quote, if occupation or duty requires it, a man can sleep during the day and be active at night, usually without any effects to his health. End of quote. Yet, according to at least some experts in the 1920s and 1930s, humankind was not only able to detach from the rhythms of nature and stay awake at night, if needed and if wanted, The individual could also become more productive simply by sleeping less, and thus working more hours a day. In 1925, for example, eight students from the George Washington University remained awake for 60 hours in a stretch, supervised by their professor Fred Moss. The result of the experiment fit perfectly into the idea of using the 24 hours of the day more efficiently and according to one's own will. Professor Moss stated, I quote, some persons just can sleep faster than others, end of quote. With a bit of training, he concluded, everybody could reduce the usual eight hour sleep by 25% and be healthy and happy with only six hours of sleep per day. This idea of sleeping faster was spreading also in Germany. According to some German experts, one just had to omit one's own luxury sleep and focus on the essential sleep. The essential sleep was only about four hours long an industrial sleeper who was doing his sleep work, that was the notion, his sleep work faster, could gain four hours of wakefulness per day, and that was the dream of the 1920s. Altogether, we can see that the fantasy of staying awake gained momentum in the 1920s and then also the 1930s. This fantasy went hand in hand with the fact that more and more people actually could, wanted, or had to work and stay awake at night. The liberating fantasy of being able to trick the laws of nature and to overcome the necessity of sleeping several hours at night met its match, however, only one decade later in the 1940s. Our second stop leads us to London in the summer of 1940 in the first year of the Second World War. In June, 1940, Just after the dreadful battle of Dunkirk in northern France and the difficult evacuation of British troops across the English Channel, a young soldier had arrived in a military hospital near London. His whole body was shaking, he could barely talk, and he did not know who he was or where he had been. This young man was among the first to experience the so-called blitz Thunderbolt, an intensive bombardment by German airplanes that happened on many front lines during the following years of the war. Resulting from this traumatic event, the young soldiers suffered from severe combat fatigue. He was trembling, he could not speak, he could not eat, and he could not sleep at all. The phenomenon of combat fatigue became a severe challenge, especially for the US military during the first major combat operations in World War II around 1942, 1943. After heavy fighting in Tunisia, but also in Southern Italy, Sicily, and Sardinia, the US Army recorded hundreds of thousands of casualties. Among the returnees and patients was an unexpectedly high proportion of mentally ill individuals. About 30% of the wounded soldiers had to leave the front owing to psychological problems or psychosomatic symptoms. Like the young soldier in London, they showed signs of physical exhaustion, their entire physical appearance was marked by tension, by anxiety, and they were speechless and sleepless. British and American psychiatrists described this state of combat fatigue as a result of sustained battle action, of hunger, and above all, of the loss of sleep. Under certain circumstances, every healthy and strong young man could develop these irritating symptoms, and this insight made it necessary to investigate the actual effects of sleep loss, as well as to search for remedies that could cure soldiers suffering from combat fatigue. As I said, about 30% of the wounded. This is why during the Second World War, the first mass experiments on the effects of sleep loss have been carried out. At the same time, the military and industry started to finance sleep research in order to get information on how to organize night watches and work schedules And they started to advertise a good night's sleep. These are pictures of a poster campaign of the U.S. National Health Service in 1942 and 1943. So plenty of sleep keeps him on the job. This is a soldier from the U.S. Navy. And they transferred this idea of the importance of sleep for the ability to work and to stay active and to stay alert also to the so-called home front soldiers, people working in the industry during the Second World War. So this is Jenny who gets her beauty sleep to be able and to be fit to work during the day. While the search for a profitable and at the same time healthy working schedule proved to be rather complicated, a remedy against combat fatigue was found more quickly. The psychiatrist who was supposed to treat the young British soldier suffering from combat fatigue in London in 1940 had been helpless at first, but finally he decided to inject just a dose of sodium amytal, a fast acting barbiturate. The soldier fell asleep immediately and remained so for several hours. When he awoke, he had stopped quivering, He had found his tongue again, and he acted almost normal. That was the description at the time. What the British psychiatrist William Sargent tried as a stopgap in 1940 became a standard procedure of military psychiatry in the U.S. Army from early 1943 on. Physicians and psychiatrists at the front used the deep sleep cure as a therapeutic method. So they put their soldiers to sleep for several days. Sleep, explained a training film of the US Navy in 1943 to the field doctors, was simply the best antidote against combat fatigue. As we can see, during the Second World War, experts had to learn that the human being was not able to reduce or to accelerate sleep at will. On the contrary, the loss of sleep had severe effects on the mental health and also the physical health of soldiers. On the other side, sleep seemed to provide healing powers, even if prompted by chemical means. So, experts as well as sleepers themselves began to perceive sleep now as a valuable resource. One has to take care of one's sleep and of the sleep of others. That was the lesson learned by the early 1940s. I want to take you once more to a different place and a different time now, to the Times Square in New York City in 1959. On January 20th at 11.14 a.m., one of the world's most famous day-awake experiments began in the middle of New York. Peter Tripp, at the time a famous radio DJ, was producing a radio show called The Hits of the Week, so it's one of the first hit shows in the radio in the US, I think it was the top 40 of the week, Peter Tripp had decided to stay awake for 200 hours in a row, just like, as you remember, the white crowned sparrow on its way south. Tripp's wake was a charity event. He spent eight sleepless days in a glass booth in Times Square, regularly anchoring his daily show and collecting money for the health of mothers and babies. After the first 105 hours without sleep, Tripp was ready for bed, as he said himself. Thereafter, he gradually lost his grip on reality. He began hallucinating. He began fighting invisible enemies. He saw crawling spiders all over his body and white rabbits all over the place. So he started to go mad. By the end of his wake the DJ was physically and psychically down and out. He was a sick man, commented a psychiatrist who had been supervising Tripp during the event. However, in spite of all the physical and psychological obstacles, Peter Tripp reached his goal, finally going to bed in the morning of January 28th. And what was even more important, after a few hours of sleep, Tripp awoke a healthy man with no signs of mental or physical illness. He had proved that it was possible, after all, to stay awake for a longer stretch of time without any late sequelae. Moreover, the story history of Tripp's wake can reveal how the perception and the appreciation of staying awake changed over time. Around 1960, The figure of the DJ symbolized a new youth culture and a new music culture. And in this historical moment, the Stay Awake stand could become a huge public event. Newspapers and radio stations, even nationwide broadcasting programs, kept their audiences informed about Tripp's Waketon, And they described him as a man who loved the night and lived according to different rhythms. Magazine articles stated that Peter Tripp was the kind of guy, I quote, who likes Pepsi and cigarettes for breakfast. His usual sleeping hours were from 3 a.m. until 11 a.m. in the morning. And he kept awake in Times Square by taking drugs. Vast crowds of teenagers gathered in front of Tripp's glass booth, supporting their hero DJ and listening to the hits of the week. And even today, almost every popular book and website about sleep and uh, staying awake mentions Peter Tripp, dubbing him the stay awake, the, the only, the, the most important stay awake man of all times. I also brought you a photo of Tripp after 193 hours of staying awake, and he was still able to anchor his daily show. So he also showed that even if you're very, very, very tired, you are able to concentrate for at least one or two hours per day to work, even if you're totally ready for bed um, in the rest of the time. In a way, Peter Tripp was challenging not only his own limits, but also the rules of a narrow-minded and conservative American society in the 1950s, early 1960s. Staying awake at night could seem like an emancipatory move on the way to a more liberal, more realistic and party-loving society. All in all, trip stunt can be understood as a personal and at the same time a public attempt to expand the boundaries of wakefulness and to emancipate oneself not only from the laws of nature, but also from the rules of the surrounding society. So it's time for our last stop, fourth and last stop. I want to start this part of my lecture with a quote from the US psychologist Gay Lucci. She wrote a bestseller book in 1973 called Body Time. Here is the quote. We humans usually move from day to day in a closed time circle. Slaves of the clock on the wall We act like sleepwalkers in a deep trance. We are not aware of the clock within us. We lost touch with it and we forgot about it." End of quote. The human being, Lucci emphasized, was made of time as much as of flesh and bone. What Lucci tried to explain in her book is, I would say, common knowledge today, only a few decades later. We all know that um, somehow an inner and biological clock is ticking in our body and scientists take it for granted that every animal, elephant or mosquito, earthworm or human being has an inner clock that ticks in an astonishingly steady and stable rhythm. This rhythm is following a curve that is repeated every 24 hours. It's a circadian rhythm. Circa means around, and dies in Latin is the day. So, this is the circadian rhythm of the biological clock. This concept of the inner clock, biological clock, was invented or maybe found in the 1960s and has made a very impressive career since then. On this slide, you see the place where the biological clock was scrutinized for the first time, the so called Pirio bunker in Bavaria, Germany, Erling Andex. In this little bunker, more than 400 men and women spent several weeks in total isolation without any contact with the surrounding world. They had no daylight, no clocks, no newspapers. They did not speak to anyone. They did not see anyone. During their stay in the bunker, several instruments surveyed their body functions, like such as uh, temperatures, sleep rhythms, pulse, etc. The results of this experiment seemed to be clear. There is a rhythm inside of our bodies, and this rhythm persists even in total isolation. This internal rhythm determines basic functions such as temperature, metabolic processes in the cells, or the phases of activity and sleep. At the same time, in the real world, outside the bunker, this biological clock is able to react to so-called Zeitgeber, and it's also the English word, Zeitgeber, Zeitgeber such as the change of light and dark, for example, temperature, food intake, social contacts, individual habits. Thus, under certain circumstances, the inner clock can be set or reset from the outside. And that is, for example, what happens if we cross time zones and experience a jet lag. So our body needs at least three days to synchronize the inner rhythm with the the rhythm of the surrounding society or nature, or however we want to describe the rhythm we have to live in. Thanks to the developments of chronobiological sleep research, so this idea of chronobiology came together with sleep research in the 1970s and 1980s, and thanks to that combination of chronobiology and sleep research, we do have the means to survey our sleep now all by ourselves for 24 hours a day. So if you want to track your sleep and your rhythms, you can simply buy and apply the, I quote, an advertising, the most sophisticated high technology that is leading us into a bright new future. For example, the Jawbone. It is an app for your smartphone and um, you have to combine it with a bracelet that you put around your wrist and this bracelet, Records your rhythms, your bodily rhythms for 24 hours per day. It collects this data, evaluates it, and tells you when you have to eat, when you have to sleep, and when you have to work in the ideal world and according to your individual rhythm. This gadget supports, I quote, the advertisement every step of the way to an active and healthy life. And there's also a corporate version, corporate sales. So maybe the historical Institute is um, interested in that because I quote, you have never seen results like these. Jawbone delivers everything you need for a happier, healthier, and more productive employee. Your employees will get fit while having fun. And that's good for you, for them, and for the bottom line. And of course, so today sleep is a resource for health, for happiness, and of course for a profitable bottom line. One might argue that the idea of a biological clock ticking inside us is so convincing because it seems to promise a way back to a kind of organic, of natural rhythm. At the same time, however, the idea of the inner clock can be understood as a means of new and subtle forms of exploitation. With the help of the concept of the biological clock, it is now possible to define the optimal time for sleeping and working efficiently for every single individual. And there's more, the decisive supervisory authority lies now inside of us, not the clock on the wall, but the inside clock, and we are responsible for keeping our bodies in time. So it's one could say our own fault if we are not able to take care of our inner rhythms and to stay healthy and fit. I come to a short conclusion. We have seen that over the course of the 20th century, both the fantasy of staying awake and the dream of using sleep as a resource has become more and more prevalent in the societies of Germany and the US. Thereby the fantasy of staying awake was not necessarily a threat, on the contrary, it promised a more efficient, more productive way of living. And even today, at least in some situations, being able not to sleep is still a means of regaining control over one's life. And it can be seen as a way of emancipating oneself from uh, even further from the laws of nature and the rules of society. However, One could also describe the need to optimize our sleep and to be aware of it as a new form of pressure. In a way, the attempts to optimize sleep rhythms and patterns contributed to a system that made human resources available around the clock. Our sleep, our dreams are functions that we need to take care of in order to stay productive and to be up to our tasks. So sometimes I wonder or think that we can only hope that the white-crowned sparrow is keeping his secret and that we will keep sleeping at night and dreaming of a peaceful, a long-lasting and a lazy sleep. Thank you for your attention.
0: We will now continue with Elizabeth Hunter's paper read by GHIR fellow Malika Leutzinger.
2: There is something otherworldly about a person walking in their sleep. The eyes are fixed open in an uncomprehending glassy stare. Like the possessed, sleepwalkers do not respond easily to attempts to awaken them. And when they do awake, they remember nothing of the episode. People can do extraordinary things in their sleep and at times they can pose a risk to others. In an infamous case that took place in Canada in 1987, Kenneth Parks drove 14 miles in his car before murdering his mother-in-law all while asleep. Sleepwalking's uncanny nature has not gone unnoticed by previous generations. The famous 17th century physician Thomas Willis observed that disturbed sleep patterns and dreams could appear demonic in nature. I knew a certain man, he wrote, who was wont after this manner to walk a night like a spectre. The first surviving documented case of a sleep murder in England is from this period. Colonel Cheney Culpepper was tried in 1686 for the murder of an officer of the guard in the night. On account of his habitual sleepwalking, he was pardoned by King James II. Tales of sleepwalkers formed part of the popular literature of wonders and prodigies in the 17th century. These were collections of strange occurrences, sudden accidents, ghost sightings, possessions, mysterious illnesses, and extraordinary abilities. These accounts were described as histories, although as the collectors themselves noted, they stretched the reader's credulity. As sleepwalking is a relatively recent term, people who walked in their sleep were known in Wonder Tales as the Noctambuli, which is a Latin word that translates as night walkers. The Noctambuli were fearless and reckless. They put themselves and sometimes others in great danger by climbing to great heights, down wells, or by thrusting about with dangerous weapons. They amazed onlookers with their spectacular abilities in composing poetry or balancing on narrow ledges. Thomas Lupton, in A Thousand Notable Things of Sundry Sorts, told the tale, marvellous, strange and almost incredible of a man who got up in his sleep, unlocked the door and went out into the woods where he killed a buck. He then returned to his chamber where he thrust about the mattress with his sword, almost killing his bedfellow. A popular story was of a student who climbed naked out of the window and got onto the roof where he took some young birds from a magpie's nest and wrapped them in his shirt. The next morning, he told the other students in his room of the strange adventure he had had, as he thought, in a dream. When he went to put his shirt on, they discovered the hatchlings still wrapped up in it. There was also a tale of a poet who composed and corrected verses in his sleep, writing for up to three to four hours, applauding his own work and calling on his chamber fellow to listen. When he went to his desk in the morning and found the verses he had struggled so much with the day before, improved and completed, he was astonished and asked if they had been done by an evil genius. A man who climbed down a well in his sleep woke up when his feet touched the cold water at the bottom. He was so shocked that he lay in bed for many days afterwards, unable to speak or move. As well as tales of sleepwalkers, there were also accounts of people who slept for many days, months, or even years without waking. At the very end of the century, in 1697, Charles Perrault published his famous story of La Belle au bois dormant, The Sleeping Beauty in the Woods, the classic tale of the princess who pricks her finger and falls into an enchanted sleep for a hundred years. In the medieval and early modern period, there were many tales of long sleepers, many which claimed to be factual. Guller, in his admirable and memorable histories, one of the most popular wonder books in Europe, recounted a medieval tale of a scholar at Lubeck who fell asleep in a chest hidden behind a wall. He was found seven years later, still asleep, and was only awakened by violent shaking. His face was entirely unaged and he believed he had been asleep for only one night. The clergyman Nathaniel Wanley included a number of stories of marvelous sleepers in his collection of wonders. The people of Lucomoria in Poland were supposed to hibernate during the winter months to avoid the cold. This fact, so Wanley claimed, was corroborated by a number of eminent witnesses, including Henry III, and many nobles and physicians of the court of France and Italy who had come across the group during their travels. London had its very own sleeping beauty in William Foxley a potmaker who worked for the mint in the Tower of London during the reign of Henry VIII. He fell asleep on Tuesday of Easter week and could not be awakened for 14 days. People tried pinching and even burning him, but he did not respond. Physicians could not find any signs of illness and he lived for another 40 years. The Greek legend of Epimenides, who fell asleep in a cave for 57 years, was a popular cultural reference at this time. References to Epimenides can be found in sermons and medical texts. Another popular Greek tale was the myth of Endymion, a beautiful young man who was placed in a perpetual sleep to preserve his youth. He was visited by Selene, the goddess of the moon. This was the subject of a play by John Lyley performed at the court of Queen Elizabeth I and of a number of poems. How were these accounts received by 17th century audiences? One clue is in how tales of wonderful sleepers were incorporated into a number of 17th century plays. Ben Jonson's The Magnetic Lady, first performed in 1621, included a tailor called Needle who walked in his sleep. Another character described how he, in quotes, would walk to St. John's Wood and Waltham Forest, scrape by all the ponds and pits in the way, run over two inch bridges with his eyes fast and in the dead of night. In a comic play by Edward Ravenscroft, The English Lawyer, written in 1678, two of the characters play a trick on the merchant Theodore. In order to convince him that another character called Torkoal has gone mad, they tell Theodore that Torkoal climbed down a well in his sleep and that the fright has driven him out of his wits. In these plays, Johnson and Ravenscroft mock the Wanderbrook genre, suggesting that sleepwalking accounts were treated with some skepticism. There is an element of absurdity in them, and they are only taken at face value by the gullible. More famous today are the plays of Shakespeare, which include the marvellous potion that Juliet drinks in order to fall into a sleep in which she appears dead, and Lady Macbeth, whose troubled conscience causes her to walk and talk in her sleep. These plays explore common themes in medicine and natural philosophy from the time, which examined the boundaries between natural diseases and witchcraft. Accounts of wonderful sleepers had been incorporated into debates over witchcraft and ghosts since at least the 15th century. The author of the most infamous witchcraft treatise in Western history, the Malleus Maleficarum, claimed that people got out of their beds in their sleep and clambered onto high rooftops where they walked about unharmed. This feat was accomplished by the support of demonic spirits who led the sleeper and protected them from harm. These same spirits, the author argued, were also responsible for transporting women through the air at night to attend diabolical gatherings, where they joined in devil-worshipping practices with other witches. More sceptical writers argued that sleepwalking was a natural disease that mimicked supernatural events, rather than actually being caused by dark spirits. The writer who had the greatest influence on how sleepwalking was understood in medicine was the 16th century Dutch physician, Levinus Lemnius. He gave a detailed analysis of the natural causes of the amazing feats of sleepwalkers in a chapter in his treatise, The Secret Miracles of Nature. This chapter entitled, of those that come forth of their beds and walk in their sleep and go over tops of towers and roofs of houses and do many things in their sleep, which men that are awake can hardly do by the greatest care and industry. End of title. Reads like a response to the claims made about sleepwalkers in the Malleus Maleficarum, although it does not mention it explicitly. This behavior, Lemnius explained, was a malady that was common in young people who were hot-blooded and whose bodily spirits were active. Their bodies were light and full of frothing blood, making them quick and agile. The spirituous vapors rose up into their heads, enabling them to remain balanced at great heights. He likened people of this constitution to boys bobbing about on the sea, which remained anchored and did not sink to the bottom because they were filled with gas. Ludwig Lavater also wrote about sleepwalking in his treatise of ghosts and spirits walking by night. He also saw sleepwalking as a disease, but he was not so much interested in what caused it as how it could appear to onlookers. This is a quote. There may be many which have such kind of a disease that they walk in their sleep, who in their sleep climbed up the top of the house, if a man sees such a one walking in the night, either apparelled or naked, and after hear him say that he was at the same time in his bed, he will straight think it was his soul that he saw. The like will he do if he hears such a one at his own house. The famous natural magician Cornelius Agrippa wrote about wonderful sleep in his three books of occult philosophy. In the introduction to this book, he wrote about what distinguishes a magician from a mere collector of wonders, was the desire to understand how nature actually worked and to try to reproduce some of her wonderful effects. For instance, the effects of fumigations and ointments on the skin could cause people to both talk and walk in their sleep. It was commonly accepted in early modern medicine that scents and fumigations had a dramatic effect on the animal spirits, causing fainting fits and confusion. Agrippa's suggestion that it could cause sleepwalking is more unusual, but makes sense in terms of theories of the movement of the animal spirits as the cause of sleepwalking. The animal spirits, according to Hippocratic medicine, were responsible for muscular motion. They were a function of the animal faculty located in the brain, which governed movement, reason, and sensual awareness. During normal sleep, the animal faculty was fully suspended, leading to a loss of reason, awareness and motion. However, sometimes the animal spirits escaped during sleep so that the body could move about, guided by the images of dreams. Agrippa discussed the issue of long or death-like sleeps at more length in a chapter entitled of the reviving of the dead and of sleeping and wanting victuals many years together. Here he considers the possibility that it might be possible for some people to sleep for long periods of time without waking or eating because some humans are capable of a form of hibernation, like animals. One of the tests of wonderful sleep, as related in Wonder Books, was to try to wake the person by burning or pricking their skin. Agrippa compared this to hibernation, and this is Agrippa. Now we may conceive that such kind of ecstasy may continue a long time, although a man may not be truly dead, as it is in dormice and crocodiles and many other serpents which sleep all winter are in such dead sleep that they can scarce be awakened by fire. And I have often seen a dormouse dissected and continue immovable as if she were dead until she was boiled and then presently, in boiling the water the dissected members did show life. Also, although it be hard to be believed we read in some approved historians that some men have slept for many years together, and in the time of sleep until they awakened, there was no alteration in them, as to make them seem older. Unnaturally long sleep was a theme of cheap printed literature in 17th century England. For instance, the true relation of two wonderful sleepers, printed in 1646, told of how Elizabeth Jeffkins slept for five days before she died, and of John Underwood, who slept for nine days and nights. A particularly interesting example of this kind of literature is a ballad printed in 1664 called A Warning for All Such as Desire to Sleep Upon the Grass. This tells the story of a maid called Mary Dudson, who worked for a gardener called Mr Phillips, who lived in Kent Street in the borough of Southwark. Mary was found in a dead sleep on the grass, which was followed by an illness in which her body turned black and she suffered a terrible thirst. The cause of the illness was discovered when she vomited up 14 young adders, which her neighbors threw in the fire. The association made in this ballad between sleep snakes and young women can also be found in Edward Topsell's History of Serpents published in 1608. Here Topsell identified snakes as a source of torpor in humans, as had the ballad of Mary Dudson. To illustrate this, he related the true history of a servant in the employment of an English gentleman. This servant became lame in both legs and felt extremely cold in bed at night, even under multiple layers of clothes physicians and surgeons were unable to cure him the gentleman discovered the cause when he saw a large snake crawl through the ground floor window where the lame man was sleeping and into his bed a whole nest of snakes was discovered curled up in the bed straw and were killed at which point the man's legs recovered sleeping in proximity to the cold complexioned snakes Topsil explained had caused the man's legs to become numb the coldness and wetness of the snake's complexion also explain their ability to survive for four months in a state of stasis, without food or drink. His analysis suggests further connections between the hibernation of snakes and tales of sleeping women found in ballads and broadsheets, as he makes a comparison between the complexion of snakes and that of women. Doth it not fall out with the serpents as it doth with some women, who, being full of humour and thick phlegmatic matter, have but a little and weak natural heat, yet proportionable to the said humour, do live a great time by reason thereof without food or nourishment. Whereas in hot and dry bodies, the natural heat that was needed to preserve life dissipated within the bones, the snake and the women who were particularly cold and moist could more easily preserve the heat within solid skin and substantial flesh. The approach to wonderful sleep in natural philosophy demonstrates the explanatory power of the humoral model. It was able to provide an explanation for not only what we would today call the sleep disorder of sleepwalking, but also how sleepwalkers could accomplish superhuman actions and how people could fall into extraordinarily long periods of sleep. While tales of sleepers that slept for a 100 years remained merely part of tales and legends, it was believed possible in the 17th century that people could experience a kind of hibernation through a torpor in which heat was conserved. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the German Historical Institute London podcast. Follow us on social media and check our website to keep up to date with new episodes.